What shall it profit a university to gain valuable endowments or private partnerships if it should lose its soul? This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to Education by the Kinks. Today's show is These Hollowed Halls, Business Creep in the University. The public university as we know it is in crisis as business prerogatives overtake its values and executive-style leadership eats away at its budgets. The number of university administrators has grown over 350% since 1976, while faculty levels are nearly stagnant. College presidents are sometimes paid over a million dollars a year, and yet state legislatures keep cutting education budgets and passing the burden along to students and their parents. A quick glance at Indiana University reveals a president whose total compensation in 2016 was over $1 million with a base salary of $600,000 and two vice presidents adding nearly another million in salary alone. And that's just at the tippy top. One rung down, there are academic deans like John Graham, who heads the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and is the former regulatory czar for the administration of George W. Bush. He's even got a source watch page devoted to him for his industry-friendly work. And this is exactly what's at issue. The environment in question inculcates the values of this business ideology where marketing professors are worth double those in any humanities discipline and splashy signature projects that do little of fundamental value for the public are pushed on administrative whims with no regard for the university's actual mission. I'd sure love to know what IU's Pointer Center for the Study of Ethics might say about this. Oh, that's right. IU nixed its funding in 2016, closing what might have been called the conscience of the university. Our guest today is University of California Berkeley sociologist Michael Burrovoy, who has studied industrial workplaces in Zambia, Chicago, Hungary, and post-Soviet Russia. He's the author of Manufacturing Consent, Changes in the Labor Process Under Monopoly Capitalism, a book made from his doctoral thesis at the University of Chicago, in which he took a job in a factory and studied the labor and management relations where he worked. Recently, he turned his sociological lens to his workplace again, this time, the university. He joined us in our WFHB studios while visiting Bloomington to deliver Indiana University's patent lectures. Burrovoy says top universities are now helmed by people he calls spiralists, executive administrators who enter the university from the outside, with little knowledge of its inner workings or long-standing values. They cultivate, promote, and protect each other through mutual recruitment, at the same time boosting their corporate-level incomes and contributing to administrative bloat, all the while corroding the public-spirited legitimacy universities were founded on. Work has always been a locus of social construction from the shop floor to the classroom. And yes, schools, though we may forget, are sites of labor, and one particularly freighted with an inherent socialist tendency. It's why there's been a great struggle in the last decades for the soul of the university, a struggle currently being handily won by spiralists and profiteers. Education 
Uh, Michael Burroughs, welcome to Interchange. Great to be with you, Doug. Um, so I'd like, if you don't mind, for uh, for you to give us a sense of your patent lectures um, a little bit later in in this, the discussion. And for starters, maybe tell us a little bit about your research and your immersion in work as well. Right. Yes. Well, I'm a sociologist, and as a sociologist, I study um, people in their daily lives and their time and in their space. And I, in particular, have studied people as they work. So I have spent um, many years uh, working in factories in different places in the world. I began in Africa, in Zambia. I moved on to Chicago. Um, then I moved on to Eastern Europe, Hungary, socialism as it was then. And then my last sojourn in factory work was in Russia um, in the post-Soviet period. Mm. Yes, but I do this, of course, in the summers or in sabbaticals, but my main job is actually teaching at the University of California, Berkeley. Mm. When you began doing this, um, this was... But the, when you began, was it your main job in the sense that you spent a lot of time in Zambia uh, uh, as in labor as opposed to being uh, obviously a student or a teacher at that time, right? Right. Yes. In the very beginning, um, I graduated from England, actually with a maths degree, but aspiring to be a sociologist. Um, but being penniless, I took a job actually in the copper belt um, uh, amongst the multinational corporations that were running the copper industry in Zambia. It was four years into independence, very exciting time. And I was interested in the question of how these multinational corporations were responding to the newly independent Zambian government. But yes, that's how I began. And um, then I got a degree in social anthropology in University of Zambia. And then I decamped to the United States and went to the University of Chicago where I got my PhD. Mm -hmm. And then I took this job in the University of California, Berkeley, where I have been for the last 40 years. Wow. Or 42, actually. <laughs> it's a long time. It is indeed. <laughs> I've always threatened to leave, but now I'm no longer threatening to leave. Well, the, um, let's, if you don't mind, because I think it's fascinating, there's, uh, as, as you sent me your, uh, podcast interview for Social Science Bites, what struck me, uh, um, in one part of that, you, you talk about moving, uh, in, into the heart of Chicago intentionally, mm -hmm. you know, to try to understand, uh, that working environment within the context of kind of a very conservative uh, and, I guess, more than burgeoning neoliberal uh, economics as well, to try to understand it in its own place, I suppose. Right. Yes, so I was in Africa, and we were bombarded with a vision of the world, sociological vision of the world, an economic vision of the world that came from the United States, which was an attempt to project the... Uh, the type of economic development associated with the United States and also the ideas of liberal democracy. Um, some of those ideas were quite problematic, um, particularly when it came to explaining why Africa was not developing the same way as hmm. it was supposed to. Um, and often, in a sense, blaming the victim, blaming Africans for having the wrong attitudes 
whereas uh, I was brought up in Zambia to think that actually Zambia's underdevelopment was a result of colonialism on the one hand and being in the periphery of the world capitalist system on the other and being dependent upon a single commodity, in this case copper, which again was a legacy of colonialism. Anyway, so I decided that I wanted to go to the heart of what I regarded at the time as a relatively conservative way of looking at the world, and Chicago was the obvious place to go at that time. And uh, Chicago was also interesting because it had been the center of what was called the Committee on New Nations, which is a, was a committee of very distinguished scholars who reflected upon and wrote about the trajectory of post-colonial Africa. When I arrived in Chicago, that Committee on New Nations had dissolved. <laughs> Very few people were interested in Africa. And so I decided that I would take on this relatively conservative way of thinking by actually working in a factory in South Chicago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how my career in factory work began. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is These Hollowed Halls, and we're joined by Marxist sociologist Michael Burrovoy, proponent of public sociology, academics engaging non-academic audiences. It's a life. Life. Life of a scholar. It's a life. Life. Now you you were actually in on the floor in in Chicago, right? Uh, yeah. Working. Did you say semi skilled? Uh, right. It, yes. It, it, I think it probably would be classified as semi skilled. I mean, as I learned through many of my jobs, that so called semi skilled work is actually quite skilled. Mm. And I, coming from a relatively middle class background, uh, stuck out like a sore thumb because of my uh, incompetence. <laughs> and so it was, it was very interesting to. Mm actually see how in different parts of the world fellow workers would respond to mm. incompetence. <laughs> that is interesting. Yes. Um, uh, a further point you make in there is... Also, uh, by the way, yeah. humiliating. Uh, well, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think you made that point in the social science bites. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, humiliating. Well. Okay. Um, further in that, in that, you talk about that on the factory floor or the floor there of your... When you were working in Chicago, there was not... Uh, I guess you, you said there wasn't so much racial tensions there that, um, that everyone worked, you know, so you made a, uh, you make a class distinction there or, or the, on the floor itself, the, the actual workers make class distinctions as well, but not racial distinctions or something like that. You well, can, you can straighten that out for Right. Me. Well, it's not that they didn't make racial distinctions. It's mm -hmm. difficult not to make racial sure, distinctions, yeah. but there wasn't an intense racial conflict. Mm -hmm. And it was, as I, as I wrote in the book that was eventually published, it was my dissertation originally, a book called Manufacturing Consent. Um, I argued there that actually the relations between races was to recognize that in the factory there was not conflict between races, but outside the factory that there was. There were all sorts of joking relations between black and white mm -hmm. that, um, that suggested, yes, there is an underlying conflict between us, but actually it's not relevant to the workplace. In that space. In that space, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that I may, yes, and of course that has been a rather contentious claim. Uh, other people have, have said, and, and in other contexts it is the case, that there is obviously racial conflict in the workplace. But my argument was that the workplace where I was, it was a, actually a branch of 
what was then a very large multinational corporation called Alice Chalmers that built sure. agricultural equipment. And I think it was the third biggest yeah, construction at the, that time. Yeah, I had a lawnmower growing up. Uh, oh, Alice very Chalmers, good. Sure. Oh, very good. Yeah. Anyway, they no longer exist. Um, <laughs> so I can mention their name. But anyway, yes, yeah, so that's so in that particular factory where I worked, um, people were constituted as almost like I argued industrial citizens with rights and obligations. Um, and it was seniority and, and experience and sometimes to a certain extent expertise mm-hmm. that determined where they were located in the, in, in the production process. That whole regime, what I call a regime of production, a regime of organizing the relations between management and workers has, has long since disappeared and we have a much more, uh, a more despotic order in, 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 in factories today. But uh, it was the height of the strength of the, in that case, was the Steel Workers Union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that was my argument. I should actually, I should, I should make, well, there is a footnote to this, and that is within the union, I think there was really racial tension. Um, not necessarily on the shop floor, but within the union, it was dominated by white workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and of course, leaders were elected, but still, um, African Americans were uh, were rarely seen in the leading positions. Mm-hmm. It's time for a break. Here's Hardway, another from the Kinks off of Schoolboys in Disgrace. More with Michael Burrowboy on how the institution of work in capitalist societies produces capitalist thinking, even when workers antagonize bosses. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And support for Interchange and WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Michael Burrovoy, a Marxist sociologist who studied the way monopoly capital organizes labor practices so workers participate in their own subjugation. In this segment, we'll discuss just how that's done with examples such as quota games played on the shop floor.
if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that book, Manufacturing Consent. That uh-huh. sounds fascinating and, uh-huh. um, in terms of trying to understand how, I, I think, uh, capitalism um, within, those, within those relationships gets you as a worker to consent to a right. type and kind of work, a, an exactly. e- an, a particular effort. Even. Very good. Yes, that's exactly. The argument was, well, the question was, it was an unusual question at the time for industrial sociology. I was asking why people work as hard as they do. Industrial sociologists have spent decades asking the opposite question. Why don't workers work harder? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is a management perspective. (laughs) Management always wants workers to work harder. My puzzle was, boy, these people really work hard. And it was both a theoretical question. How is it, in general, that people work so hard that they can make profit for 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 managers and employers? But it was, I was actually astonished when I worked, went onto the shop floor. I mean, it was pretty difficult for many months for, for me to keep up with the sort of norms that was expected of me mm-hmm. and the rates at which other people worked. So anyway, that was the question. Why do they work as hard as they do? And I had a number of answers. One of the answers, which is quite general across factories or factory work, which is very is arduous and boring, um, is, is how does one how do how do workers make meaning out of boring arduous work mm-hmm. and what they do in my observations um is that they create work into a game mm. and um so in in the in this and it's a game that is recognized by all and there are certain rules informally recognized by all both management and workers and it's usually created by workers but under the sort of supervision almost of management and anyway this game was the game what we call the game of making out mm-hmm. and the idea was to make the quota right. and the quota was um, anything between a hundred percent to 140 mm-hmm. percent but there were certain rules to this game so you never exceeded officially 140 percent because if you did then management would come in and make the work more difficult right, right. and if you found a rate that was actually very difficult to make you couldn't even make your hundred percent you deliberately restricted outputs and so you actually would hand in a 60% or 70% mm-hmm. to indicate to management Bring that this is a really right. lousy rate. Right. Right. Um, and we could do that because we were always guaranteed a minimum wage, which was about 100%. Mm. So we were indicating, yeah, you better change the rate for that job. Gotcha. Anyway, it was, uh, there are many other aspects of the rules, but those, those, those were that, that, that's what gave meaning to our life on the shop floor. And at the end of every shift, we would figure out how well we'd done. And that was sort of usually uh, indicated by our state of our emotional well-being at the end. Right. We would get very upset if we had a really tough time mm. uh, during the day and really couldn't make out. And we would be elated if we actually... Now, we might not admit it publicly, but everybody could see, you know, that emotionally this was... This was, it was a deep emotional commitment, and of course, the result was that those eight hours went by very quickly. That's you're really fascinating, and and I think something that most people would understand to say, you know, life has to have meaning for most people, and if you're spending it in drudgery frequently, there has to be some other thing that you're actually doing other than the work itself. The work is almost superfluous in that sense. Uh, well, the work becomes mm-hmm. is is given meaning mm-hmm, um, by mm-hmm. the wouldn't matter what game. work necessarily. That's though. right. Yeah. So yes, I think right. you can see this across right. all, all sorts of types of yeah. work. 
Well, it it is it is interesting. You have to do it. I uh, I'll share a little bit of my own uh-huh. very menial experience. Uh-huh. Uh, I worked in fast food restaurants. Oh uh, yeah. And you know there was a period where you know if you work during lunch and you're working uh, on a particular station and you kind of all have to work in a particular way and when you get done and you didn't mess up anything. Right. You know, you feel really good about it. That's and right. it's ridiculous on one level. That's right. right. That's exactly right, Doug. It is ridiculous on one it's level. Ridiculous. Yeah. But um, nevertheless one gets really absorbed um yeah. by these games. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a way in which we consent mm. to work in our tail off mm. for very little mm. return. Right? And to make other people very Rich. wealthy, right, yeah. right? Yeah, that's the the basic uh, of of the book. Is that uh, that's, that's you, one aspect? That's yeah. the most that's the most generalizable aspect of mm. work organization. But there are other peculiarities of the workplace. One was that there was a what we call in in in, in sociology an internal labor market mm-hmm. that basically people mm. could actually sh- um, when there was a vacancy in the plant. It would be posted and people would bid for the job. Mm. And on the basis of their seniority and experience, they would be given the job. And the union would oversee that this was done in a proper way. And so what that meant is that if you didn't like your supervisor, you could bid off the job and bid on to another job. Mm. That meant that your supervisor was, if you were a good worker, was somewhat dependent upon you. Mm. So in some ways, it empowered workers on the shop floor. Mm. and But at the same time, empowered them as individuals. Right. And mm. sort of intensified their participation in some ways in the very game of production. And, but not as a collective then, in a sense. Right, right. That was that was the interesting thing. I think that what was happening was that, yes, the union was quite strong. And indeed, in this sort of monopoly sector of the economy, mm-hmm. wages were much higher than in the competitive sector. Uh, and there was collective bargaining every three, four years over the contract, which meant that if the company was doing well, we got some sort of, there was a sort of trickle down, we got some uh, corresponding wage increase. So we had an interest in actually working mm-hmm. for the company in, in, in the long run. Um, so it, it, it was a, the, this internal labor market, as I say, constituted people as individuals, but there was a collective representation by the union. Mm. But our consciousness was very much as individuals playing these games and the internal labor market intensified that individualism. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is These Hollowed Halls, and we're joined by Marxist sociologist Michael Burrovoy, proponent of public sociology, academics engaging non-academic audiences. In a deep dark Well, we seem to be in, uh, obviously, a, a fairly similar space in, in this whatever new market economy or new mm. uh, information e- economy where mm-hmm. we are also pitted as individuals mm. against each other. Even within mm. these particular corporations, you're not really an employee of a corporation. You are a contractor in many ways mm. or con- you're contracting your labor in mm. many ways. And there's little... If any, it seems to me, and and this may be a wrong word to use, but maybe a right word in in how we're talking about emotions, right? Mm. The, the sense of loyalty to mm. to a place, to a, a way of work, has I don't know if it's moved somewhere else or if we've lost it entirely in many ways. What am I loyal to anymore? You know, not well, yes. Not what is happening increasingly? People are loyal to perhaps their careers, mm. and so if we look, for example, at software engineers they actually go from place to place, from employer to employer, and what they need to do is to accumulate um, 
experience in the latest computer software techniques, latest programming language. And so they are building up that, what we call their sort of, their skills or their cultural capital so that they can actually be employable, continue employable in a very dynamic industry. So they're very loyal to their careers rather than to particular employers. Right. And we move away from a sense of obviously community and situations like that. You know, these are part of the things that I think divide how many of us think about how we should be uh, in a state against um, a management uh, environment or against the state even you know these are things that right. continue to divide people into right. into self-interested little individuals who right. you know want to do well for themselves and their families but yet we are now no longer we don't even it doesn't matter if I live in Bloomington mm. to do this kind of work right. you know, it doesn't matter that's, if, that's also true yeah that's so we, true. we lose a sense of locality a right. sense of community in this right. in these in this work environment right and also there's an increase in uh, temporary employment temporary mm-hmm. agencies so your employer is the temporary agency and right. the p- place right. where you work is not your employer right. so that creates a certain ambiguity and complexity to the relationships yeah. between employer and employee between manager and worker right. and you know, in, uh, i think in in some other situation you talked where well, you talk here too about piecework Right. Uh, and piecework, this is a kind of piecework as well, where you're sort of hired on for a job and you move right. on at that point. And there's that precariousness of piecework and Absolutely. even, even well paid work. Right. There's this, you don't have a stable, uh, you know, you're not contra- contracted for multiple years. You don't have a sense that this is a, uh, a job that I will be in any longer, right? right? right. So you're so continuing. There is, we, in, 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 in sociology, we say there's been a movement from the proletariat to a precarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically life is, uh, ever more precarious. We don't have the sort of long-term commitments by employers. Yeah. And you can see this, I mean, uh, Uber, Uber is a is a mm-hmm. is a good example. Or Lyft, or these these the gig economy right. is, is one in which we constitute ourselves as individuals, as entrepreneurs. It yeah. all sounds great, but it's actually quite precarious. Yeah, and it takes away a little bit of what we think of as politics, right? Where it's kind of hard to operate politically if you if you're right. on your own in a, in many right. ways, right? right. Uh, we we lose even how, we don't quite even know how to be political anymore right. for for these reasons. It seems like. Well, if we focus on work, yes, yes, yeah, yes, but there are other parts of life apart from work. But, mm, but sure. yes, yes, but yes, there are. <laughs> I'm not sure if there are for a lot of people, though. Absolutely, yeah, and of course, yeah. and we worry about work even when we are not working. This is one of the most extraordinary things that capitalism is able to extract right. consent, not just at work but beyond work right. at home. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It's time for another break. This is Life of a Scholar by Three Titans, a trio of fifth graders with their sights set on higher education. When we come back, Michael Burravoy counts the ways the university is in crisis. Stay with us. The life of a scholar can be quite hard. Rising early in the morning, gotta set their alarm. Some live close by, some come from afar. Either catching the bus or arriving by car. In class, we sit together, brothers arm by arm. Always tracking the speaker, always sitting in the star. All the hard work, we are raising the bar. Gonna go for a college bound we are. It's the life, life, life of a scholar, it's the life. My brothers for help. L love for my people, my teachers, my fam. A is 
bird, wanna be all I can. Or respect to all I meet every day. On the path to college, that's a scholar's way. It's a life, life, life of a scholar. It's a life, life, life of a scholar. It's a life. Doug Storm, this is Interchange. For this segment of These Hollowed Halls, Michael Burrovoy discusses his patent lecture, The University in Crisis. We'll learn about the top-level administrators he terms spiralists, and look at the ways Indiana University might fit this paradigm. So uh, you're a patent lecturer, mm-hmm. and you, you're giving or have given one lecture already, mm-hmm. and then you have another one this evening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, two lectures. What was the one on Tuesday about? The one on Tuesday was about universities mm-hmm. in crisis. And um, being a university town, it's a, yes. it's a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of a pushback to the university of itself to, to to have you come and talk about the crisis, right? Indeed, yeah. and in fact, it was actually in the on the, it was a front page story of the Herald the Herald Times the Herald mm-hmm. Times mm-hmm. yesterday, and I even got a a message from I think it's John Turnbull. Who is his? He's he's the Republican candidate for mayor. Mm, mm. Anyway, so he was very upset by the what I was saying. <laughs> um, so that was good. I thought it's great mm. that I mean the whole idea is to have a public mm. discussion mm-hmm. um, about the university. Um, as right. I say, the universities are in crisis. Uh, he didn't think so, but uh, from the, from from. Where we sit in the university, it's cert- the university is certainly undergoing major transformation. Right. And um, so I was talking about four t- types of crisis, four crises. The first is a fiscal crisis because states have withdrawn mm-hmm. funds um, from the university, and that has led the university to seek revenues. And basically, the university becomes like a profit center. Um, so reduce costs, increase revenues, figure this out. How do you do it? And they do it by in all sorts of ways. But the first way is to increase student fees. Mm-hmm. When I began teaching in 1976, as I remind my students today, when I began teaching there, the, the fees were $630 a year. And now they're $14,000 a year. So that's a major source of revenue and, of course, creates very different circumstances for students themselves. We were talking about precarity just a few Mm -hmm. minutes ago. So their lives have become far more precarious. First of all, how are they going to find 
or the money, the money for tuition and fees. Right. Well, there is a strong redistribution. So those with less than 80,000 uh, family income, they don't pay fees at all. Mm. Um, but still, the cost of attendance, living costs are enormous, perhaps mm. less so here in Bloomington than, right. in, than in Berkeley, but nevertheless, they're considerable. So anyway, so from their point of view, there is a certain precarity about their existence of students, and then they face a labor market that is equally precarious, and they may carry with them quite considerable debts at the same time. Right. So the world has really changed. So from the point of view of students, one, they may not see it as a crisis, but I see it as a crisis. Yeah. So anyway, so that's one source of revenue is our students. Others, of course, are alumni, donors, mm -hmm. uh, public-private ventures, investments by pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Um, like Eli Lilly. Here yes. And, yeah, that's so so sure. um, who they invest because actually the university can provide them with relatively cheap research mm -hmm. done by graduate students who are paid very little right. and the anticipation that in the future they will have a – a uh, full-fledged job that will pay them better. That 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 labor market is also drying up. <laughs> right. So anyway, I, so there's a fiscal crisis, mm -hmm. and the fiscal crisis leads to leads to the transformation of the administrative structure of universities because now universities are in the business of making money if mm -hmm. they possibly can. And that means they import all sorts of experts quotes from the World Bank, from finance, who then, in a sense, indeed turn the university into a profit center, but are very much at the cost often of the quality of education and certainly at the cost of the control of the university by the faculty. In the old days, universities were... Uh, a self-governing entity, mm. uh, relatively autonomous, but now increasingly administrations coming from the outside control the universities. I call many of, I call many of these people, I call, um, spiralists. They, they spiral in from the outside with credentials that do not make them uh, uh, particularly fit to run universities, except they are good, they're supposedly good entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, and they spiral in, they develop some signature project that they, uh, that they sort of impose upon the university that costs a lot of money in the short term and the promise that there will be returns in the long run. And then they spiral yeah. out. Yeah. They may spiral <laughs> down. But anyway, we, the university, definitely spiral down <laughs> as a result of many of these projects. So that's the trend. That's the sort of, that's a governance crisis. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to what I call an identity crisis that the participants who in, in the university, faculty in particular, have to think about, is the university now a private good mm -hmm. that actually benefits individuals in return, students, for example, in return for the fees? Or is it still a public good in which we produce knowledge and we teach and educate for the public good, for the welfare of all? And increasingly, it's moving in, of course, the private direction, which is very problematic in my view, first from the point of view of the quality of education, but second, from the point of view um, of the knowledge that we need to deal with ever-deepening problems that the world faces. And if we don't have a relatively autonomous university, the knowledge that will be produced will be the one, the knowledge that is useful for, for those who run this world, right. the capitalists, um, the business people, the financiers, Wall Street. And if they have their interests, they will actually continue to run capitalism right. in 
<laughs> to trouble. <laughs> and so that leads to the fourth crisis, which is a legitimation crisis <laughs> because now students are actually paying for their education. Um, the university is no, is no, not seen to be this taken for granted public good. Right. And, uh, it's not taken for granted as something that is necessarily an essential for the, for society. People are increasingly skeptical about what the university contributes. So its credibility and legitimacy falls, which therefore makes it more and more difficult for universities to reverse this move from right. pu public to private good and to get money from the yeah. state legislatures. So, yes, so those are the four crises. Um, it, and my, my argument was that we have, and the reason why I was giving this talk, not that I'm necessarily a specialist in, 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 in university or higher education, but because I thought that it's essential that we actually discuss among ourselves what sort of university we want and where we are going. Right. The danger is it's like my factory that individual faculty are actually so driven by right. the, the incentive structure that they partake in and yeah. sort of see their worlds in a very individualistic yeah. way that they, even though they are, of course, brilliant people, nevertheless don't see the collective dilemma in which we are face, which we yeah. face now. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is These Hollowed Halls, and we're joined by Marxist sociologist Michael Burrovoy, proponent of public sociology, academics engaging non-academic audiences. You know, as, as you talk, obviously it's easy to look at this university environment and simply take some of the things you've written uh, in the uh, Daily Californian um, uh -huh. and just put the numbers that that go here right. into there put the names right. that are right. here into that right. you know so right. so you opened um right. basically uh the 2017 op-ed on uh, privatization increases inequality right. and reduces the quality of education so you open it basically talking salary right the Ber berkeley chancellor receives right. 532k four head coaches right. right so all i did was just go to our we have a salary oh, yeah. you can go look up salaries right. here right? right so right. uh we have a president who makes uh, whose salary is $627,000, uh, but bad. in compensation, total compensation package, uh -huh. and this is 2013, uh -huh. I found numbers on, uh -huh. over $1.1 million. Wow. Right? Uh -huh. And he's in the top 10, right. in 2013, the top 10 in, at the time. Uh -huh. Ohio State's president or chancellor's $6.1 million in total compensation at the time. Six point one million. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, so uh, we have, of course, like uh, all big, uh, big ten universities or large schools, we have head coaches that also make a large. Yes, well, head coaches make a good two million, <laughs> and then they, then you get rid of them because <laughs> they don't perform right because yeah, yeah, the football right. team right. doesn't win. Right. But you still have to pay them for Salaries, three or four yeah, years. So yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they have a contract. Yes. They're not precarious. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They lose their well jobs done, precariously, but but they're not in a precariat. That's right. right. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right and but there is a precarity in the university there is all the workers who are outsourced right. and them, and yeah. and have no sort of benefits right. are very precariously employed yeah. so that's the other side of the story yeah, yeah a lot of those also and and similarly in, in indiana the tuition fees here uh, i think are about ten and a half right. thousand but 
Then you add room and board. Uh, you know, you add other fees. Yeah, it was much cheaper to live here. It's probably well, half, it's a, half the price here. So yeah, you know, it's not it's, a bad bad deal. Not I suppose. Bad in, yeah, yeah. And I I think that our that McRobbie, the president, touts this all the time. The cost yes. to go here and get Absolutely. a quality education Absolutely. far better than other places. Yep, yep. Um, but and you also point out that they're consistently bringing in out of state students, foreign students as well. Right. They paid double. Well, they paid triple, actually, nearly triple in, mm. in, 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 in Berkeley. Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, double here. I think it goes yeah. from twenty total about twenty four thousand to about forty eight thousand if you're out of state. So, oh, that's it. Room, total, total, yeah, total, total package. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. That that became a scandal in in mm. California because, uh, for example, at Berkeley, which is the highest percentage of out of state students, is twenty seven percent, and then of course there are. California residents whose children get straight A's and get wonderful scores in, 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 in high school. Right. And they can't get in. And then suddenly they hear, ah, where all these outsiders are coming in. Right. And then the scandal intensified when the state auditor audited, um, the actual intake of students into the University of California and claimed, controversially, but claimed that actually those coming from out of state were less qualified than those coming who had been turned down mm-hmm. within state. Uh, well, that was a political I bet. Well, the qualification is not important. It's the cost of doing business. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you get so, more money off of them. That's, that's right. It. That's a yes, simple bottom line calculation. There, that's a it? simple bottom line yeah. calculation, but it is still the University of California, well, even I, though I the agree. University of I California agree. only receives, at this point, 13% of its funding from the state, it is still the University right. of California. Well, I think uh, IU gets about 17%, or again, last numbers uh, I, I was uh-huh. able to find, I see. about 17%, yeah. maybe less. I mean, we took a, a major hit, obviously, after the the 2008 turndown, right. um, and I don't think it's gone anywhere right. else right. since that point. Right. Yeah, so it's easy to look at these things as, right. as crises, as you say, across right. universities right. in different places. And right. it's not hard to, to do the same things with each department as you talk about bringing business right. uh, a business Absolutely. identity into, into universities. There are two – I was just looking this up the other day for – uh, obsessive reasons of my own, uh-huh. but uh, the our uh, Kelly School of Business here has uh, the two top professors in the Kelly School of Business make over three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. One of them, I I don't remember his name, but his career, uh, a large chunk of it at the Fed in New York, uh-huh. and then he came here. So, right. you know, these are, as you say, you the you know we moved from this expertise in this one particular right. thing. And then move into the, the spiralists. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. Now, professional schools are doing quite well. Yeah, they are. But, but of course, the claim is that they actually can bring jobs to their students. So they, anyway, all right, you understand. <laughs> I do. I think, I think, I think I understand. Sure, sure. Well, and, and I, and it is easy enough to just again look, as you say, these things are template things now in some sense, right? So, uh, again, the university president, Michael McRobbie, comes from an entrepreneurial background. He's, uh, He's actually um, Australian. Uh, I just pulled it up. This is on Wikipedia, right? You can look uh, it up. Yeah, uh, you can look everything up yeah, these days. Yeah, <laughs> PhD. Uh, let's see. Worked on philosophy, artificial intelligence, uh-huh. and automated theorem. Uh-huh. Postdoctoral fellowship in automated reasoning projects, uh-huh. uh, things of this nature, right? And so, uh, moved from there to beginning collaborations with uh, foreign, uh, I guess, Asian countries in terms of how the uh-huh. sy- information systems works together. And of course, then he becomes an administrator here and that's where 
the university begins to try to find its money from, I guess. Uh -huh. you know, those projects that... that uh -huh. are, yeah, his network obviously facilitates yeah. right. getting money from right. outside. Right, right. Well, that's the idea. It's time for our final break. We'll listen to College, another one from the trio of fifth graders called Three Titans. Stay with us for more with Michael Burrovoy on business creep in the university. for Interchange and WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And support for Interchange and WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back. This is Interchange. Today's show is These Hollowed Halls, Business Creep in the University. For our final segment, Michael Burrovoy talks about taking sociology public, specifically his call to wrest the university away from expensive administrators, cultivating a narrow business ideology, and back into the hands of the workers, the faculty, and a broad understanding of what it means to be a scholar. The questions that we, we ask ourselves are, again, I think, maybe they're not existential questions, but questions of the value of university, right? Questions of what, as you mentioned, why do we go to university? What does it mean? And these things are claimed, as you say, promises. In fact, the IU has, you know, a promise in one of its slogans, right? Keeping the promises of XYZ or, you know, so promises to its students. What, what does the university give you? A job is generally how we think about this. You go to university, then you get a job, and if you go to university, you get a better job than if you don't go to university, right? This is, uh, this is statistically true. Uh, but for how long? What kind of job? When will you lose that job? When will you change careers? When will you be downgraded in your career? Because jobs have changed since you graduated. All these things become difficult, right? Yeah, so. but that's, that's the standpoint of the individual. But <laughs> yes. if you take the yes. standpoint of the university as producing actually value for society mm -hmm. as a whole, and crucial knowledge to solve problems, problems mm -hmm. like uh, 
opioid addiction, problems mm. like uh, climate change. Mm. You know, you need a university that, in a sense, is at some distance from society to develop mm -hmm. solutions slower, that will benefit it's a all. Slower scholarship in some sense. Yes, too, yes, right? very good. Right. Slow scholarship. I stole it from uh -huh. somebody. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Taki. <laughs> it's good. Um, yeah, yes. Slow scholarship. Slow food, slow scholarship. Uh, we, we've moved away from slow, definitely. Uh, high impact is what we need now. Uh, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're impacting, but uh, so uh, so that's easy enough to see. It's not hard to talk about. It's you know the things that you talk about in terms of how uh, you know uh, professors are co-opted into this as well. Uh, they get paid more money. They start to see themselves as as superstars in many ways, and they well, that's they, their dream, of course. If in the nature of being a superstar, there are relatively few. <laughs> that's that's right as well. You get to be unique in that sense right. i suppose right yes. uh, and be influential I mean, you're very powerful i mean mm -hmm. faculty professors are very they have a lot of power over students mm -hmm. it's a frightening mm -hmm. in some ways to my mind a sort of frightening position to mm -hmm. hold mm -hmm. that's why i believe we should all, all all university professors should spend time in factories and understand what it means to be subjugated mm -hmm. to others Yes, I'm well, you know, of course. Yeah, well, that, of course, I'm beating my own trumpet. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> but yes, but um, anyway, but yeah, it would, it, it, it's, uh, it yeah. is a very, it is, it is still a prestigious job, mm -hmm. and um, and it's a very privileged job, and it is um, for those who have tenure, it is a relatively secure job. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is these hallowed halls. And we're joined by Marxist sociologist Michael Burrowboy. He delivered a recent patent lecture at Indiana University called The University in Crisis. Well, I like one thing you wrote about this. You said the profligate executive class pushes the cost down to the most vulnerable. That was a, mm -hmm. a great line in, in one of those op-eds. Uh, it, does, it does obviously, it more than seems, it's, it, it's, it's a clear... Uh, truth of that precariat uh, mm -hmm. environment. Yeah. Um, so you at some point, uh, again, this was in that social science bites interview where you talked to, I think it was David Edmonds said, um, you've been involved in so many, you know, working class capital, you know, anti-capitalist uh, or trying to understand capitalism mm -hmm. and what it does. And he says, but you've not been an activist, mm -hmm. uh, but it seems to me maybe you're more of an activist now than you've been in the past, right? Absolutely correct, Doug. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I decided that I could no longer work in these factories. I mean, I was just getting too old to do this. <laughs> it's for an intellectual to work, just to stand for eight hours is quite a project. Um, so I decided that I would now study my own factory, which is my right, own workplace, right. which is the university. And I, as soon as I got started getting interested, it was, I was quickly, uh, co-opted into actually be, running or chairing the Berkeley Faculty Association. Mm -hmm. We don't have a trade union because my colleagues wouldn't think of themselves as trade unionists, <laughs> but we do have this association. And so, yes, yeah, so we, so we develop sometimes critical perspectives. Well, we've read some of the op-eds mm -hmm. that we've written mm -hmm. or I've written, um, uh, uh, critical of the ways the university is changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I, I suppose I'm activist in that sense. And mm -hmm. of course, that's why if they, they invite you now, the the patent committee invited me to come here and i said okay i'll come here but the what i don't one lecture i have to give is on the university that is my obligation to um 
the, the role I see myself now yeah, to generate the discussion and debate about what's happening to the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about uh, expertise and politics and uh, high impact, things of this nature, and slow scholarship also. One of the issues that seems to be, uh, that this seems to be about, about as well, is that um, universities are political now more so than they had been. Part of all this business agenda tends to be a political agenda as much as anything else. Political agenda to serve a business agenda. I don't know how to separate them anymore. Um, so, you know, this is the, the, the decision the universities have taken already, or at least the people in charge of universities, right? So you, your conversations about trying to get back right. some power to the people who actually work in the universities right. who are doing this, this scholarship and trying to convey knowledge right. and maybe do understand understand themselves as creating uh, citizens, um, um, thinkers, right. uh, you know, people who have awareness of global issues, but right. not just so they can make use of them. Right. Themselves, right? right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how is it that you, you contend you can wrest that back from the board of trustees at, at Indiana University that's, right. you know, full of right. business leaders, a Republican right. governor, a, right. an entrepreneurial right. uh, president? Right. Right. <laughs> so what are, what are we supposed to do or what are you supposed right. to do? Well, I think, the, yeah, you're absolutely right and yeah um i think the first step is for us to understand and to be concerned about the fate of the university mm -hmm. and i don't i think many of us uh, bury our head in the sand and and, and and move on with challenges of our day-to-day -day character yeah. that, and we miss the, the bigger picture in the long term so the first thing is to actually generate debate and discussion about where we're going whether it's right or it's wrong i'm not that's not the issue let's recognize what is actually happening to the university mm -hmm. Um, if one, so that's, that's what, that's where I argue is this sort of like a community project, but there is a, also an accountability project that we, in a sense, can no longer consider ourselves as the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. We have to in, not just bring people in, whether it's students, whether it's people with different perspectives onto campus. We have to move the campus into the community. Mm. We have to be accountable to, if we're a public university, we have to be accountable to publics. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. to, in a sense, recognize uh, what are the issues that actually people face and we have to be present in those communities recognizing their interests, their concerns and their needs. That is the only way it seems to me one can re-legitimate the university mm -hmm. at this moment in history. Um, and, the re and the idea ultimately is to actually to refund the university as a public university mm -hmm. and that would come from the legislature. Now, well, yeah, I mean, if you look at the data on Republicans versus Democrats, you will see that the, uh, I actually showed this data actually on, on whenever it was, Tuesday. That's why you got the response from John Turbull, maybe. But maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, what it shows is that actually the, the, the amongst Republicans and, and Republican, ind independent Republicans, um, the positive view towards the university as having a positive impact on the, on, on society has, has moved down from 56% it was to, th I think it was now 34%. Mm. So, you know, the university is losing heavily in the legitimacy amongst a large section of the population. The Democrats have slightly increased, it's up to about 70%. Mm. Um, so that's, so that, if you've got a Republican legislature, you're, you're in principle, you've got a harder and higher road to climb than if you've got, as you have in, in, in California, a Democratic legislature. Right. Yeah. So, in a, so what we are doing, uh, various interest groups in higher education, not just the University of California, 
we have put out a proposal that there should be what we call the $48 fix. Mm -hmm. And the $48 fix which now becomes the $66 fix. (laughs) But anyway, essentially, it's a 12.5% income uh, uh, surcharge on on income tax. So everybody will pay 12.5% more on their income tax than before and for the medium income that would be was $48 it's now $66 and of course if you earn more than a lot more than medium income you're you're going to be paying a lot more but anyway that's the idea that's a proposal and we're trying to push this through the legislature and in principle the legislature is not totally opposed to this because it is actually giving money in a sense to students not to these profligate administrators right um, the profligate administrators are very skeptical about this approach because they think they're going to lose mm-hmm. actual money out of this because, of course, they do get them. They're not sure whether they will recoup the losses from the state. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's the proposal, somewhat controversial proposal um, that we are putting forward to the legislature. And we'll see how far we get. But at least, you know, what has happened is that Bernie Sanders really put this on the agenda, mm-hmm. the idea of debt-free edu- higher education. Right. And so it is now a project that is seen to be somehow more feasible. Mm-hmm. And actually, you can actually propose such things, whereas I think he made a huge difference in that regard. Mm. So uh, so a difference, New York State has also um, has a similar proposal. Um, and they've actually introduced already some sort of concessions to those uh, families that have are relatively poor vis-a-vis the education of their children. Mm. So, yeah, so anyway, that's, that's the political strategy that is emerging from this. Um, but even if it doesn't work, it is generating debate and discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's important, yeah, right? Yeah. It's good, good that you're here doing it. That's our show. We'll close with Birth, School, Work, Death by The Godfathers, off of the 1988 album of the same name. Our thanks to Michael Burrovoy for speaking with us about the university in crisis. Burrovoy is perhaps best known for his book, Manufacturing Consent, changes in the labor process under monopoly capitalism and for his promotion of public sociology. He works at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Bryce Martin is music producer. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Girls don't understand the devil makes work for idle hands.